Welcome to Bonjour Bitch. My name is Charlotte and I'm many things, but most importantly for this podcast, I am multicultural and sometimes a bitch. We're going to talk about everything from relationships to daily life, all from a multicultural point of view. Each week, I'll be accompanied by the most amazing guests to delve further into topics that really affect us all. You'd better get ready for it, bitches. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode where we will be discussing shaking up the fatherhood narrative with Bode Abaderin, father of three, husband of best-selling author Candice Breathwaite, and just an amazing all-around man. Hi, Bode. Hello there. How are we doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, uh, you know what? Get in there, you know, just <laughs> get in there and just, you know, moving along it is what it is. Where are the kids today? Are they at school? Yeah, all at school. RJ is with his minder, so he's not of school age yet. So he's with his minder. Esme's at school and Renee's at school as well. Amazing. Are you really pleased school opened up again? Yes, I am. <laughs> I, 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 I've got to be honest. I'm pleased school, um, I mean, school's opened up again. Of course, we've got our fears and concerns and whatnot. And we, you know, look, we've had loads of conversations with the schools and minder as well just them to clearly display you know measures they've put in place and you know what we seem we, we feel quite comfortable with the measures so you know what let the kids go out there i think we need to really think about the impact the lockdown has had on the children as well yeah massively yeah big time so i think children also feel great being back at school you know with their friends so that they can you know socialize and do whatever it is they do uh, at least it just makes it feel a bit normal for them Fair enough. Okay, so whereabouts did you grow up and where is your family originally from? Right, so I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. It's where my family's from. So I spent my younger years back there in Nigeria, all through nursery, primary school, secondary school as well, was in Nigeria. And then I came over here and did my university education and whatnot. But um, I'd say growing up was definitely Nigeria. And that's where my parents are from. And then, so you came here for uni to the UK, and then you stayed here for work or love or? I I stayed here for whatever it is life could throw at me, all right? I just, I decided to, I mean, staying here was a conscious decision, to be fair. I wanted to make a mark for myself. I wanted to discover myself. I wanted to do things away from the shadow of my dad, you know, my parents. My dad's a really strong character. So I just wanted to prove everyone that, you know, I could make something of myself. And yeah, here we are many years down the line. And so your wife, Candice, you met her in the UK? Yes, absolutely. In the UK. And is Candice of Nigerian origin as well? No, she's not. She's um, Caribbean, although she was born in the UK and her parents were born in the UK as well. But I'll tell you, of Caribbean heritage, yes. Barbados to okay. be exact, yes. Oh, interesting. So there's like a big mix of cultures there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive mix of cultures. I mean, we've got the the British influence. We've got the Caribbean influence. We've also got the Nigerian African influence as well. So it's a, it's a right mix, but it's great. And do you guys speak different languages at home? No, we don't. You know what? I'm really trying to get the kids into learning you know the language you know where I'm from the the culture what my culture speaks I mean I'm from a culture called the Yoruba culture so 
Nigeria is split into different tribes and whatnot. So we've got yeah. the Yorubas, the Igbos, the Awasas. There, there are loads more, but those are the three main ones. And I'm from the Yoruba side of it. Uh, and so I'm really trying to, you know, get them into learning a few words and a few sentences. Surprisingly, I actually learned how to speak Yoruba over here in the UK, not in Nigeria. Really? I know, right? I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I learned how, how to come? Speak. Uh, it was interesting. The thing is, I understood it, but I never, I never spoke it. Look, my parents always spoke English to me, but then when I came over here and I started to meet other Nigerian people, um, you know, I started meeting with a few Nigerian guys and girls and whatnot, and they predominantly spoke Yoruba, you know. So I then thought, you know what, I'm going to pick this up as well. I don't know. It filled me with some kind of sense of pride. So I then made myself actually actively start to speak it. I think it was pretty easy because I understood it already. Yeah. I, I understood some words. It was a lot easier for me to just pick up the lingo and the accents and whatnot and start to speak it. Well, yeah, I learned, I learned it here. That's so funny that your parents didn't speak to you, or at least that it wasn't something that was sufficiently spoken at home that you would speak it to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a bit of a weird one. Look, I think Nigeria, I think the main language over there we'd want to say is Yoruba. Sorry, it's English, right? And the better your English, I think that then shows how classy you are. That shows your class within society and whatnot, you know. So okay. better your English. You know, the Queen's English. And my parents were really strict on the, the Queen's English. I was private school educated as well over there. So, uh, and I went to a school, my secondary school was a school called King's College that was actually created by the British in colonial times, 1909, if I'm correct, to be exact. Okay. So, you know, it was a school where we played cricket, we played hockey, you know, polo, stuff like that. You're more British than most British kids. <laughs> Typically British <laughs> stuff. So, yeah, it, it's stuff like that. So my parents are really strong on that. Queen's English, we need you to speak proper English, we need your grammar to be correct. Yeah, we need you to dress in a suit and a tie. School uniform then was a suit and a tie. You had to wear a school suit and a tie with polished shoes as well, like black polished shoes. That's how it was, to be fair. Wow. Please tell me you had aircon in your classes. Uh, can't quite remember. Because I guess it, I've never been to Nigeria. I really, really want to go. But I guess it gets really hot in summer, right? It, it does get really... I mean, it, it's, it's... The funny thing is they start to say around about this time of the year oh it's getting a bit chilly and I'm like well chilly at 28 degrees are you kidding me <laughs> what it can go as high as about 34 36 degrees over there but I mean when you live there you kind of get used to it yeah I mean there's air conditioning everywhere you get into air conditioned vehicles you get into air conditioned rooms or houses and whatnot um, but you're used to it, to be fair. And I think back there when I was growing up, not so many people had air-conditioned cars anyways. I can't remember my parents having air-conditioned cars for a very long time. But you're used to it. Amazing. And so how have your origins influenced you professionally and personally? Uh, in a very big way. Again, it was all about discipline. Discipline was a big thing, you know, when I was growing up. Um, hard work. There's a belief that, you know, hard work gets you where you want to go or what you want. So I've always been a more, uh, I think off the back of that, I've become a very structured and disciplined person. It has to be this way. You've got to plan ahead because of failure. I remember this thing very well. Failure to plan is planning to fail. It just always ringing through. 
So I think that's what's definitely made me who I am in terms of, you know, like I said, discipline and structure and just doing things how it's supposed to be done and planning things properly. And what does fatherhood mean for you? And how different to uh, is that to how your father interpreted fatherhood? Right. It's very different. My father's version of fatherhood then was, look, I'm the be all and end all. I'm the head of the family. What I say stands and it is what it is. You can't argue it. You can't bring your points across. What I say stands and nobody should challenge that. Whereas for me, I kind of figured early on that I didn't enjoy that and I didn't like it at all. So I made a conscious decision that when I do have children, I need my children to be in a position where they can openly talk to me about anything. They can share their views, share their opinions, because look, at the end of the day, they're kids. And if I could think like that when I was young, of course they can as well. So I need to give, give them space for their feelings, for their thoughts, for their suggestions, you know? I'm just here to guide them. I think it's a difference, it's a massive difference. My father, and I think back then that's how it was, your children were your property, if that makes sense. Your yeah. children were your property, your children. They need to bring praise to your name. They, need not, they, they cannot bring shame to your name. Anything they do that you do not agree with could be classed as shame. And for me, I don't see my children as my property. I'm like, you know what, they are their own individuals and they are totally different people. They act differently, they think differently and they function differently. My role as their dad is to essentially just guide them. You know, yeah. of, co of course, they've got their own journeys. And as a parent or as a father, I need to ensure that I am providing an environment whereby, you know, they are somewhat protected, but not that much protected where they can't actually experience their own lives as they are. So I leave them to do their own thing. Free will is a massive big thing in my house. You know, sharing your views is a massive big thing in my house. Let's have conversations open, honest conversations. So it's it's totally different from the way I was parented. And what fatherhood means for me, it's always changing. That's one thing I found. Initially, when I stepped into fatherhood, I think I was kind of closer to, in terms of my parenting style, it was kind of close to the way my father parented. But over the years, it's kind of changed. And I've started to learn a bit more. Like I said, what fatherhood means to me has massively changed. Now, for me, what it means to me is what legacy am I leaving for my children when I'm no longer here? Mm. So that's what I'm working towards, you know. What legacy am I leaving for them? How are my children going to act or how are they going to behave when there's nobody watching them? That's really lovely. And, you know, I mean, what you said about the fact that your children aren't your property, it really resonated because since I've been a little girl, my parents always told me, you're not our property. You don't belong to us. But we also don't belong to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always grown up with that being normal for me. You know, they're yes. like, we owe each other respect because we're, you know, mummy and daddy and mm -hmm. your children. Mm -hmm. But, and, you know, you need to know that respect, mutual respect, that you should respect anybody that you of ever course. meet. Um, but we don't belong to each other. And mm -hmm. we're individuals and I remember when I met my husband who's Spanish when I explained this concept to him and especially his parents yeah they were very much like 
What are you talking about? Well, no, no. Like <laughs> our children are our children for life. Yes. And we belong to them as much as they belong to us. You know, you have that duty of care, that duty of visit, that duty yes. of that is heavy. Yes. And, you know, I've gone through phases with my parents where we've been extremely close mm. with both of them, with one of them, with the other one. Then we've separated a bit and it's an ever evolving relationship. Yes. And I think it's so much healthier because you actually want to spend time together you actually want to discuss things together yes. and I think as well as a young adult that for me was the sort of crucial moment and when you have your children get to that age as well it was discovering my parents as very much equals yes that's it and my parents always said I remember like being four years old and they were saying we're equals like mm -hmm. there is no differentiation between us it's just that obviously you're a child so it's yes. a bit different in that sense but I've mm. never been made to feel that I was beneath them in any yes. way and I think discovering my mum and my dad as adults with their flaws with their imperfections that you start mm -hmm. to see when you're an adult yourself and you start to understand a bit more about life all of a sudden you're like they're actually pretty cool people and I actually exactly. want to spend time with them and I'm one of the few in my group of friends that all of my birthday parties, like my parents are there. Yeah. I would never not want them to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Not because I feel that, oh, I have to invite the old phonies because, no, no, no. I actually enjoy spending yeah, time actually with enjoy them. spending time with them. Yeah. It, it's funny you say that though, because that's exactly, and I think that's what's formed, or that's what's helped me form my own way of parenting my children, because it wasn't up until I say in my 20s that I actually realized that, you know what, my parents are actually cool people. My mom parents are totally different from my dad. She was the softer one, the one that would pull me aside and be like, right, you know what, just take a hug and whatnot. And I could never remember ever hugging my dad when I was younger. I can't remember ever hugging him. So it was just like that. And it wasn't until recently that he turned around and said to me, I am proud of you. Right? Oh, now I see you as a man. Now I see you as a responsible person. And to hear that from him kind of, so I felt some, I felt physically felt weight lifted off my shoulders because for many years, I found myself trying to be something to please him. And that's just because of that upbringing where I constantly had to live up to his expectations. Yeah. And so I'm not there with him, but then I'm constantly thinking, this thing I'm doing now, am I going to disappoint him? And that's like living in bondage, I'll be brutally honest, because yeah. you're constantly in that straight, you're constantly in that little box where you can't really do stuff because you're thinking you might be embarrassing somebody else. And quite frankly, it's not on that journey with you. It's your own journey. Yeah, it stops journey. you, it stops you from developing yourself and developing and, and taking your own path. Do you yes. have siblings? Yes, I do have siblings. I've got two sisters. They are, they're twins and they are 33. And did he behave the same way with them? I think it was kind Because oh, they were girls, it was different. Because they were girls. For, they were girls, it was different. It, it's a big, it was a big thing back then. I probably think it's still a big thing now as, as a male child and then the firstborn as well. Massive pressure on me. Like you are going to grow up to be something 
not on my watch. Yeah, you finish school and you come home for lessons and then there's no playtime. Yeah, you know, dad, dad pulls up in the driveway and I'm just running because I, want, I don't want dad to see me sitting there watching TV and all that stuff. It was crazy. And yeah, like I said, it was, wasn't until recently that I kind of felt, you know what? The weight's no longer there. Just having that conversation with him and then when he turned around and said to me, because I think he's really thought about it as well. And he, he openly admitted, he said, look, parenting you, I made a lot of mistakes. And I parented you based on fear. Because he was surrounded by, because a lot of his brothers didn't really do anything with themselves. So he was surrounded by that. And his fear was that I was going to turn out like mm. people he was surrounded by. And he said, look, I must be honest with you. You know, I parented you with a lot of fear. And that means, oh, that meant I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm apologizing now. But I really want you to see me not just as your father, but I want you to see me as your friend your brother, your confidant. And it was brilliant. That conversation was amazing for me. And now we talk every day. We talk about football. You know, we joke about stuff. We're video calling every time. He's video calling the kids. And I'm constantly teasing him saying, you let the kids get away with stuff that you never let me get away with. And then he just rolls his eyes and it's fun now. And that's the way it should be. That's so nice. How does he perceive your take on fatherhood? Does he think it's a better way? Does he sometimes say, you shouldn't do this, you should be a bit harder? No, he doesn't. He doesn't poke his nose. And I'll say he doesn't poke his nose where he doesn't belong. He definitely doesn't do that. He, it amazes him. And he goes, I never knew he could turn out to be this kind of father. And he hasn't just said it to me. He said it to other people who have then in turn said, oh, your dad said this. He's really proud of you. I'm proud of the way you parent your children. So he loves it. He goes, look, you know, you're always there with your children. You know, you do stuff I never did with you. I never changed a diaper. And here you are, right in the middle of it, changing a diaper, making bottles and feeding your children. I never did that. But it's great to see you do it because you're there with them every step of the way. And they will never forget that. You know, and he thinks it's great to be back. That's amazing that he's a big enough man to actually say that and not just sort of stick to his guns for the sake of pride. I think that's really lovely. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think he's done that because the relationship was going the wrong way. As I was getting older, where I was able to then turn around and tell him no. So it was getting really, I mean, we were at loggerheads and the relationship was just going south and something had to give. Mm. And it was him, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And on that note, why do you think that there is still a social stigma around stay-at-home dads? It's society, isn't it? The way society was built, the way society was constructed, and that narrative that it's a man's sole responsibility to go out there and provide for the family. For a man in the house changing diapers and not going to work? Really? Rubbish. It's society in itself, and I think it's the hierarchy. And the way I look at a family unit is... Yes, you've got the man and the woman. I see the man, right, as the pillars. Great. But you've got the foundation, which is the woman. And without a solid foundation, the pillars are not holding anything up. It's simple as. So it's, it's a two-way street. And quite frankly, if the woman in the family is doing something that's far more important, right, it's all right for a man to take a back seat 
and let that woman flourish and do her thing. As a man, your role is also very important because now you're facing the children, at least that's been done. That's, you know, you're looking after the children, that's been sorted. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody. But society has, has this notion that, you know, that's not a man's job, it's that's what a woman needs to be doing. Who says? It's, it's mind-boggling. And, and for me, you know, I'll shout from the rooftops that there's so many things I would do with my children and I will not think twice about it. And more men need to do that. More men need to take time off work, especially when they have babies. You need to take more time off work. What, two weeks? What's that? That's not enough time for you to bond with your child or your newborn. Up till today, so when Esme was born, my second child, when she was born, I was right in the peak, you know, right in the peak of my career at the time. You know, I was really chasing a career, chasing job titles. I'd leave the house on Monday, not come back till Friday. So Candice was left with doing a lot of that stuff. And even though it's changed now, Esme still doesn't let me put her to sleep, right? Because from birth, she wasn't used to that. Candice yeah. did it, not me. So till today, I'm like, Esme, come on, let me put you down to sleep. You know, let me sink, sink your nostril, right? Let me do something. And she goes, no, I want mommy to do it. I'm like, yeah, but I know the words. She goes, yeah, no, but I just feel better with mommy doing it. I'm like, okay, cool. But then RJ, my little boy, because RJ has had more of me now than Esme did, as RJ won't let anyone else put him down apart from me. So mom can take him and put him in bed. You best believe that boy's not going to sleep until I come into his room and sing him his nursery rhyme, his baby shark or something, give him a full-blown concert or just tell him, good night, I love you. And then he goes, good night, daddy, I love you. Then he goes to sleep. So that's beautiful to watch. Children need that. They need both parents being active in their lives and playing their part. The whole, you know, stay-at-home dad stuff, look, it's just absolute rubbish. What's a stay-at-home dad? What's a stay-at-home mom? We're parents. Mm. I also think in any healthy relationship, you know, there's moments where, first of all, both parties are equal and both yes. parties have to provide equally whether it's home or work and I just think you know you have to support each other and if for a certain period of time one's career has taken off then the other one can support at home and vice versa and it doesn't have to be that you know because it's currently the way it is that's it it's set in stone it's going to be like that forever and ever and you know as life evolves like you know children grow up they go to school you don't need to be at home that much anymore like it's I think it's much fairer to think of it that way as like a partnership, a partnership rather than you're the one stuck at home for the next 16 years and you can't leave home. Yeah, it's, it's, if you, I, I think growing up, I think my mum prepared me for this because when I was younger, my mum never took my sisters into the kitchen. It was always me. I was the person she was always taking into the kitchen and say, come and see how I'm cooking this. And her reason for doing that was like, look, no woman is going to, take you for a ride. You know, no woman is going to make you go hungry. So you've got to come learn how to cook and look after yourself. You've got to come learn how to clean so that you can clean your place and lay your beds and all that kind of stuff. I do most of the cooking in the house. Not because Candice can't cook, but I do most of the cooking in the house. I do most of the cleaning in the house. Even when I was working, I was doing most of the cooking and the cleaning in the house as well. It's just, it's just natural to me. Why mm. shouldn't I do it? It's my place as well. And if I'm proud of it, why shouldn't I clean it? Why should I leave that for 
someone else to do it just because she's a woman and I'm a man. No, I, I don't. I don't buy it at all. I don't. Interesting. On this note, how did you and Candice come to the decision that you were going to be the one that was going to look after the kids at this moment? When I was, again, chasing my career and doing all that stuff, you know, Candice had said, look, this is what she wanted to do and she wanted to build something and she wanted to build an empire and whatnot. So for a very long time, most of the financial, you know, responsibility fell on me while she was building the career, you know, in, in the background. However, you know, I think I got to a point after chasing all the job titles and chasing the bonuses and all that stuff where I just thought, I don't wake up in the morning with a fire in my belly anymore because you just know, I just knew deep down inside that that's not what I was supposed to be doing, right? I was just trying to, you know, the status quo, just go out there, be a successful man in the corporate world, do whatever. But I just, it wasn't giving me that fire in my belly anymore. I have no hunger for it. And I knew I had something else I really wanted to do. Like I enjoy speaking to people. I enjoy mentoring, you know, the younger ones. I enjoy public speaking. You know, that's what I really want to go out there to do. So there came a time when actually we just sat down and Candice said, look, I'm doing this now. My career is in this position and it's enough money coming in that we can actually look after the family. I think it's now time. See, what you did back then, it's now time for me to repay the favour. I think it's now time for you to step away from that, sit down at home, obviously need help with the children, but use that time to actually figure out your place in this world and what it is you're trying to add to the world, just like I did back in the day. And I thought, you know what, you're right. There's no better time to do it. Perfect timing. You know, there's still, our bills are still being paid. We've still got food in the fridge. We're okay. Take that time out and just figure myself out and just try to line things up and do what I actually really love doing, just speaking to younger kids and mentoring them. And here we are. That's amazing. I love that. I also think it's such a healthy example to set for your own kids for when they one day have relationships of that equality. And because you have both boys and girls, and I think it's so healthy as well for, especially from a daughter's perspective, Yes. see that you were there to support your wife but then you also knew when to take the step back and vice versa and I just think it's so healthy and also for your boys because I just think I'm pregnant at the moment and we're having a little girl but I kept thinking you know if we have a boy Mm -hmm. as a mum I feel so much pressure Mm -hmm. to raise him so that he's respectful of women, so that he's respectful of women's choice. Like, you know, all those things, because I'm a feminist and I was just like, how do you raise a little boy to be feminist? It's so new that I felt so much pressure about that. And I was like, I feel that I can much easily raise a girl to be strong girl and like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. be strong and be able to do anything she wants. And I think having such a healthy relationship and partnership is probably the best example because on a daily basis they see mm-hmm. what's right exactly that and these kids they they watch everything they they see everything and they soak it all up rj my little boy for example he he copies everything i do so that means he's copying me when i'm hoovering the floor so he's got his own little toy hoover and then he's following right behind me doing it as well so already he's kind of learning that okay you know what i saw dad washing the dishes and i saw dad hoovering and i saw dad doing all that stuff i saw dad cooking and it's so, fine it's not weird 
it's not weird. So to him, it's not weird. So, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but I don't, wouldn't then expect him to grow up disrespecting women or thinking, well, you know what, that's a woman's job. Like, where yeah, did you learn yeah, that from? Yeah. No, it's what we all do. We all play our part to keep the house going. Whether you're a man, woman, whatever, we play our parts and we get it done. We're all equal and we've all got our part to play. Love it. So now a bit more of a sort of timely matter. As a man of colour and a father, how have you felt this year in light of the Black Lives Matter movement? How has it impacted you personally? Oh, heavy. For me, it's been a crash course. And the reason why I say that is, again, remember I said I spent a large part of my life in Nigeria. Now, Nigeria is a predominantly Black country. I went to private school there. You know, and I was raised as part of the majority. I was raised into believing that, you know, I am, I am everything, you know, pride in myself, pride in my skin, you know, pride in my blackness and so much more. Then I moved to the UK where it's totally different and what black people make up, what, 3% of the total population? Yeah. And it's different. But there are so many things that we could, we could class as microaggressions and, you know, covert racism or whatnot that just flew right past my head because to me I didn't feel that from birth but then over the years I started to realize that my behavior started to change like prime example I'm driving my own car that I work hard to pay for you know so I pull up right beside a police car in my car and automatically my police you know I just kind of turn down the volume of the music I'm listening to why do I do that do you know what I mean uh or I, I'm, I'm working, I'm walking down the road and the job I did took me to different counties, different parts of the UK, parts, parts of the, very, very remote parts of the UK where there's probably no, no black person there. And I felt weird anytime I went into places like that. Why is that? And then for me, I think it all came crashing down when my little Esme at age four experienced racism in school. No. You know, but, uh, you know, and this was racism, racism dished out to her by another four-year-old. Yeah, so they've learned it at home. So they've learned it at home. So for me, that's when it all came crashing down, where I started to think to myself, right, you know what? All these things that Candice has been banging on about for a very long time, they're not a figment of her imagination. She's not overdoing it. She's not overthinking it. It's a fact, because what will make a another four-year-old girl tell my four-year-old girl that I do not want to play with you because I do not like to play with, play with people that have got dark skin. Why is that? So I really started to think about it and whatnot. And you know what? The Black Lives Matter movement, which has been around for quite a long time, but of course, it was at the forefront of our minds recently over the last few months, lockdown, a lot more people are glued to their screens, people are watching it and absorbing it and taking things in. And everyone is thinking, whoa, but it's been here for a very long time. This is something that we've all had, Black people most especially, have had to deal with for years. And you know what, whilst it's great, a lot of people are talking about it. It's on our screens. I was watching Sky Sports yesterday and it came up, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's great. But I think the real work has to happen behind closed doors when no one's watching. Because for me, it's really important that people act right when no one's watching. What conversations are being had on people's dining tables yeah what conversations have been had in those private functions are people not saying anything because they're trying to gain a part of you know they're trying to gain their own share of social capital what is it are people now challenging their family members 
space to actually say, right, you know what, the way you're thinking is wrong. Are people having these conversations more? Are people diversifying their libraries? Are people buying, you know, instead of going for the white Barbie doll, maybe this time around go for a black Barbie doll. You're watching stuff on TV, you know, are you, instead of teaching about the fact that Mongo Park, for example, discovered River Niger in Niger, when I'm just thinking that's just mind-boggling, how did they discover it when they had people living there in the first place? doesn't make sense. Are you actually telling, t- teaching your children about the history of Africa, you know? The fact that, you know, literacy, what we already had that there, we already had libraries there, we had universities there. Are you doing that? Are you going out of your way to get the right information? Or are you just chilling with that status quo? So for me, that's, those are all the thoughts going on in my mind. So whilst I can see a lot of conversations happening online, about Black Lives Matter, I'm always there in the background saying, no, that's great, but what are we doing when no one's watching? Yeah. Well, what are we doing? Are we gonna keep having those conversations and stop being performative and just actually do things in you know, action? But I don't think in our lifetime, we're gonna see, of course there is change because there are more conversations happening. Maybe not in my children's lifetime, but I know that as long as the conversations continue to happen, things will continue to get better. So for me, it's had a massive, massive, massive impact. For a while, I just shut off, you know, you just, you get into that space sometimes where you just want to shut everything off and just probably want to start second guessing everybody. But then, you know, you just have to think that, you know what, we're trying to figure things out, but let's just crack on and figure it out. And I think, you know, for me as a white person, I feel that I've learned a lot in these past few months. I've always considered myself non-racist and you know have had growing up one of my best friends was happened to be black and Mm. it never it never even crossed my mind yes but in the last few months I've really learned about how it's not about not seeing color it's about seeing color and appreciating it for what it is And, and and all the culture that is behind that and you know for many years already I'd been sort of asking black friends you know questions and you know about their hair about things that are completely different for white women and black women and really wanting to learn about it because I'm curious but always feeling like am I okay to say that you're black like Mm. is that okay you know always being very very careful of what is PC what is not etc and I feel that it's opened up conversations even more and that it's not just about being non-racist, it's about being anti-racist. Absolutely, that's it. And that's something that I'd never realised because I'd never been part or I'd never been privy to those conversations and understanding the difference. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I feel as if for so many years there's been non-racist white people Mm. and then non-racist black people or BAME people in general, but the conversation has never flowed between the it's two. Never between the two, yeah, yeah. And I feel for the first time, maybe thanks to lockdown, there has been that flow that has taken place. Yes. And, you know, for example, at home, we've had the conversations with my parents a lot and, you know, about can you erase elements of history, mm-hmm. you know, and rip down statues and will that actually do something or you know can you remove moments from tv Mm. that fine are inappropriate when you look at them now but should you keep them and maybe put like a 
you know how there's PG in front of some movies and just say this was obviously made in a different time when things mm. were different so that mm. people can learn okay well that definitely was not right but you sort of take it for what it is mm. and I you know, having loads of those questions and debates and obviously speaking about it with my parents who come from a completely, you know, they were brought up in the 50s and 60s. My yes. mum in the UK when it, it was racist back then. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was trying to say it in a nice way. Let's be honest. Yeah. It's something that if my mum has ever used those words, it's been in a very naive way. And mm -hmm. me and my sister are like, oh my God, you cannot say that. You can't, you can't say that. so yeah, yeah. wrong. Yeah. And then I feel that in the past few months, it's been more of a, it's wrong because. Cause. And we've actually had explanations, not just, you can't say that word. And, you know, watching documentaries and then understanding the sort of, you know, the, I watched 13th on yeah. Netflix, which is, oh my God. The, the system is so fucked up crazy isn't it but then you just it literally just goes to show how you're taught from being really little that yep. that's a bad man because yes. of the color of his skin and then you know when you think about it you're like no no but you can't generalize but then you find yourself on the street mm -hmm. having that reflex and you're like what the fuck is wrong with me Yes. And then I think I've very fortunately, I've never been a victim of racism. And, you know, I'm very grateful that it's never happened to me. But mm. in the past few years, especially since Brexit, I have witnessed racism. And I found myself standing up for these strangers that I didn't know, because it made me sick to my guts. It just made me realize not enough people Mm -hmm. stick up like they'll say it and they'll be mm -hmm. like oh yeah I'm not racist I'm not racist but then when it comes to that key moment when you have an opportunity to stand stick and up. say yeah. hang on a second what did you just say that is exactly. inappropriate yeah and in the particular moment when I did it it was in a post office queue mm. and a gentleman who was standing just behind me happened to be black and an elderly white lady mm -hmm. came and stood in front of him. And I said to her, but the queue's behind this man. And she was mm. like, oh, but he's just black. And I was like, what? And I could see the black gentleman mouthing to me, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is no, not it's okay. No, it's not okay. No, it's not this okay. This is not okay. No, it's not okay. And yeah. she was just like, oh, but you know, this and that. I, I can go in front of him. And you know what? An elderly lady, she grew up in a different time. I was sort mm. of giving her, not that it's correct, but mm. each to their own. We're allowed free speech in this country. Mm. And I simply invited him to stand in front of me. Brilliant. Made her insane. Of course. He initially was like, no, I can't. I was like, please take my place. Like, please. This is yes. absolutely fine. But it broke my heart that he was mouthing to me, it's okay, because I just thought... How many times has this happened to him? Exactly. And I've uh, never had to go through that. And that's not fair that he takes this as normal. As normal. And, and, that, and that is it. That, that is one of the effects of racism. You start to say, yeah, it's okay. I start to accept it as normal. I mean, something happened to me as well. And again, it was a, it was a white friend that actually stood up for myself. We were at an event for a business where we were consulting for the business, a big brand, we we're consulting for this brand. And 
we're talking about the representation of men on, on TV in terms of adverts and whatnot, for some reason, the conversation went towards, you know, the lack thereof in terms of representation of black men when it comes to this part in terms of fatherhood and whatnot. This white guy, head of a massive, massive PR company, then turned around and said to me, but I don't buy that. Look, can, can you give me an example? And for a, for, a, for, a, for a few seconds, I just went mute. And that's because deep down inside, I was boiling that actually this guy is gaslighting me and asking me to give him examples of the abuse that we faced. Like, really? At that point, there was a conflict, massive conflict in my head, because I'm thinking, right, if I lash out, I'm going to be tagged, you know, the typical angry black man or violent black man tag. But then, so let me try to be quiet. And then it was a white friend that literally just said, no, you don't ask him to explain his existence to you. And she literally ripped into him. And I saw him get embarrassed, but I didn't see him again after that. But it's times like that, I felt empowered. I felt loved at that point. And it made me feel well, feel great. And I'm sure this friend probably has totally forgotten about it. She probably didn't realize what she's left with me at that point. So I'll always feel a certain kind of endearment towards her just because of that single act. That single act helped me find my voice. And it was great. And there's so many, many, many instances like that. There's so many things that happen like that, which is why, you know, we need to scream from the shout from the top of our lungs. We need to have conversations. It's important to have conversations. We need to have those conversations, not just block things out. I don't subscribe to cancel culture. I don't like it. Uh, I think cancel culture doesn't leave room for learning. There's learning that needs to be done. Yes, there's some white people that may say, well, but I didn't do that. It was generations before us. Yes, we know that. But we're saying there are things that have been erased that you need to know. I found that very recently that, for example, the Windrush generation, they came over here and, you know, and then before them, slave owners, because slavery never really happened on the shores of the UK, it was on the colonies, right? So slave yeah. owners were being paid compensation for the abolishment, you know, for when slavery was abolished. They were being paid compensation for that. And actually, the compensation, they didn't stop paying, and that was taxpayers' money. And it was round about, say, 2013 or 15 well, or so. I read that too. And the was, payment I was actually like... ended. What the hell? Yeah, and for me, I thought, are you kidding me? Hold on. So the Windrush generation came here to work and pay taxes. And this Windrush generation, these people came from those colonies, these slaves, right? And they've had to pay because, yes, their money, the money that they paid towards tax have gone to these slave owners. So it means part of the tax that they've been paying has been going to these slave owners in terms of compensation. And then let's not talk about their children and their children's children. It's mad when you think about it. And, you know, we think about the Windrush scandal. Let's talk about that as well. It's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. And that's why I often say that a lot of people would turn around and say, yeah, but it only happens in the US. No. No. Actually, I think and I feel that the version of racism that we have present in the UK, which is covert, can be a lot more dangerous than the version that's currently present in the US, which is overt. Because you don't know what the next white person that's sitting now right next to you is thinking. You don't know. You see it all the time. You're walking down the streets and this woman crosses the road and clutches her bag tight. Or you sit down on the, on the, on the train and then 
this white person that's sitting down there gets up to sit down on another side. You see that all the time. It kind of messes up with you. And yeah, look, we can go on and on and on about this subject, but I just want people to keep learning and keep reading, diversifying those libraries, keep having those conversations. Again, what's most important is, what are you doing when no one's watching? True. I don't care about the formative stuff. I don't care about the social media stuff, the black squares. Yes, it brought the conversation to the forefront. I don't care about what people are showing me and saying, oh, look, this is what I'm doing. I don't care about that stuff. That stuff never really got me going. What you're doing when no one's looking, that's what gets me going. Yeah, I mean, I could take for, I could talk for hours about this with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we can. I get that feeling we can. Absolutely. <laughs> It's time for the bitch fire round. But listen, we're going to have to take this to the bitch fire question round where okay. I will ask you um, questions, for example, dog or cat, and your answer would be? Dog. Good answer. Uh, <laughs> Netflix or Prime? Netflix. Bath or shower? Shower. ASOS or Zara? ASOS. Sweet or savory? Savory. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Winter or summer? Winter. City or countryside? Countryside. Vintage or new? Vintage. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Yay! Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today on Bonjour Bitch. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Um, can you please remind us of your social media handle? It is at I am underscore Papa B on Instagram. Amazing. Well, listen, Papa B, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And Thank I you hope so we much. actually get and to meet too. in person at some point soon. Yeah, um, who knows? Let, let it, we, I'm sure it will happen. It will happen. Hopefully one day. Um, but listen, thank you all for tuning in today and we'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. Remember to tune in next Monday for a brand new episode and please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help us out. We'll see you then. Au revoir, bitches.